Blog Talk Radio. AJ Bruno Show. Uh, my guest today is Avi Loeb. He is a theoretical physicist from Harvard University who has been in the news quite a bit lately. Uh, welcome and thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Sure. Uh, to start, could you tell us what it was that inspired you to pursue theoretical physics and study astrophysics and cosmology? I was born on a farm in, in Israel and uh, collected eggs every afternoon. And uh, I was mostly interested, uh, thanks to my mother, in uh, questions in philosophy that are the most fundamental. Uh, but uh, I had to serve in the military at age 18, as it, it is obligatory uh, in Israel. And uh, as a result, I decided to pursue physics, which was useful for the defense of the country. And I um, was recruited to a special program that uh, uh, is an elite program that allowed me to uh, finish my PhD in physics uh, at age 24. Uh, but during this program, uh, I uh, initiated a project that was funded by um, uh, the Star Wars initiative uh, that Ronald Reagan had at the time in the mid-1980s. Uh, and that, that was the first international uh, project funded, and it brought me to the U.S. Uh, to visit Washington. And in one of those visits, I also um, visited Princeton, and uh, the Institute for Advanced Study, eventually they offered me a five-year fellowship under the condition that I'll switch to astrophysics after I finished my uh, military service. And uh, I did that, and uh, then I uh, uh, got to Harvard, you know, to a position of an assistant uh, associate professor, junior faculty, that nobody really wanted because people thought that there is no chance of being promoted to tenure. But uh, three years later, I was promoted to tenure, and then uh, a decade later, I became the longest-serving chair of the astronomy department at Harvard for nine years between... 2011 and 2020. So, uh, so that's a brief history of my background, and I still see myself as a farm boy. You know, I sometimes think of uh, going back to the farm because I, I love nature. Uh, I don't like so much crowds of people uh, as much as I like. So every morning now during the pandemic, I jog uh, in the local woods and I enjoy uh, the birds, the ducks, and the rabbits that run around. Mm. I'm I'm the same way. Uh, so you were telling me just a few minutes ago, you came here during the Reagan administration uh, to work on SDI. Um, can you tell us what exactly did you do with that? And did you, did you have any interaction at all with uh, the president at the time? Not with the president, but with General Abramson uh, that led the project. He came to visit us uh, in Israel and I presented the project. I still have a photograph of that. and um, And he liked it a lot. Uh, and uh, it was a method for accelerating, we have a patent on it, for accelerating uh, masses to high speeds that could protect against uh, ballistic missiles. And uh, uh, at any event, it was a long time ago. And uh, uh, since then, um, uh, I did mostly academic work, but over the past uh, six months or so, I was a member of uh, the President's uh, Council of of advisors in science and technology uh, for the White House in, in Washington, D.C. So, um, um, you know, I still see uh, an important part of my uh, duties to help um, science and technology for the nation. By now, I'm a citizen of the U.S. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, I mean, they called it Star Wars, I guess, kind of mockingly, but 
it seemed to me a pretty bold idea. Do you think the concept would have been a good one if it came into fruition, or what were your thoughts on that? Well, I think it achieved, it accomplished a very important political goal of uh, uh, basically pressuring uh, the Soviet Union uh, in a way that uh, pushed it uh, to the limb and, and um, ended up uh, in what we know at the end of the Cold War. And uh, in terms of the feasibility of it, you know, at the time it was a major threat to the U.S. and uh, some physicists were cautious about uh, the potential of actually uh, uh, being able to protect against those bal ballistic missiles in a way that was contemplated. But, you know, there wasn't enough work done to assess whether that's feasible or not. Um, in retrospect, I think it, it accomplished much more than one would have expected, politically speaking. Mm. Uh, uh, but uh, in terms of going to space, you know, I uh, participated in a debate just a couple of months ago that was organized by IBM and the Bloomberg News about the question of uh, whether the space race between the U.S. and China is good for humanity. And all the other debaters were arguing that there is a risk uh, to national security from going to space and we should sign contracts with everyone, including China, and not really push this uh, race. Uh, but it wasn't really clear to me why they're saying so, because all the military threats that might exist are from uh, objects that are hovering just above the surface of Earth. You know, we live on a two-dimensional surface of the Earth, but space is all about the third dimension, going very far from Earth. You know, if you go to the moon or Mars or the stars, uh, there is no military risk on Earth because it's very far away. And uh, the whole idea of space exploration, uh, you know, I think is the future of humanity and uh, something that can unify nations around this, this goal rather than uh, pose threats from one nation to another. And, uh, and by the way, it's not a matter of national pride because the commercial sector is interested, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. And clearly there are commercial benefits to exploring space and uh, that's based on the global economy. It's not uh, split by individual nations. So I think we should think more more globally and, and, and consider space as one of the most exciting frontiers for the future. Sure. I was going to bring this up later, but since you mentioned it, uh, Elon Musk actually said recently with his new, you know, this fortune he has that skyrocketing, he wants to put as much of that as possible to colonizing Mars and getting a million people there by 2050. What are your thoughts on that and the feasibility of it? Well, first I should say uh, the word colonizing is a loaded word. We don't want to use it because there are implications to what happened when, you know, the Americas were colonized. You know, a lot of people that used to live there died. And uh, it's not really about colonizing. It's about opening new opportunities, you know, in ad on other planets, and then uh, I think the, the biggest concern that he is not uh, addressing is uh, the fact that there are cosmic rays, these very energetic particles that we are protected from because of the Earth magnetic field. So we are shielded. And if you were to go to the surface of Mars with no protection, there is the magnetic field there is very weak and, and there is no atmosphere to protect you. Um, then within a year, uh, a significant fraction of the cells in your brain and, and, and body would be damaged by these energetic particles. So one needs proper protection. You can't just go there. Uh, so either, you know, drill uh, 
caves underneath that uh, have enough material above them to protect from cosmic rays or, um, you know, build an infrastructure, a habitat that allows humans to live there for, for a long time. And uh, that's a challenge that has to be addressed, can be addressed potentially, but was not addressed yet uh, at, at sufficient detail. So speaking about doing it by 2050 is really dependent on whether we resolve this issue. This is a health hazard that was not contemplated because all the trips we've made were short, you know, to the moon or, or to the space station. Uh, and um, there is this health concern that needs to be addressed first before you send people because that's, that's irresponsible. It's just like pointing a gun at their head and saying you have one year to live. I mean, what's the point? So right. you need to resolve the health uh, hazard first. And I think it's doable in principle. You know, a any problem of that sort can be uh, resolved by uh, technology in principle. And uh, we just need to, to consider it. But I wouldn't be as optimistic. Now, you might also worry that humans cannot really live in a completely different setting. But on that, I'm more optimistic because, you know, humans came from Africa and learned how to live in apartment buildings, you know, uh, over a period of tens of thousands of years. And that's a giant leap going from a jungle to, to high rises in New York City, for example. I mean, um, and uh, I don't see going to space as much as a leap, you know, because you can build a, a, a habitat in space that would not be very different from the Bronx, you know, like in principle, mm -hmm. if you put enough money into it. So, um, yeah, so there are challenges on the one hand, but I do think we should address them because currently all, the, all our eggs are in one basket mm -hmm. here on Earth. And if a catastrophe happens, everything will be erased. So we need to contemplate contingency plans to go elsewhere. And... You know, it's similar to the biblical story about Noah. You know, Noah had the, this vision of the great flood that is about to come and decided to build an ark where he put all the animals so that he can preserve life on earth from the great flood. Mm. And, uh, you know, a similar thing can be thought of in, in terms of our future, building a Noah's uh, spaceship that uh, will preserve some things that we really care about. Uh, but you might think that you need to load the whales and the you know, birds and, and, and elephants into a giant spacecraft. That's not the case, because with modern science, we can just take their DNA information and equip a, a CubeSat with a computer system and a 3D printer and give the information about how to make synthetic life on another planet out of the raw materials that are there using the 3D printer. So we can, you know, with modern science, we can do much better than just loading animals onto a ship. Uh, and, but it's good to think about how to have multiple copies of things that we care about. Because, you know, the revolution of the printing press by Gutenberg was that previously there were only few copies of, of the Bible that were all handwritten, and each of them was extremely precious. But once the printing press came along, you could produce many copies and then you wouldn't worry about something bad happening to one of them. That's an interesting point. I never thought of that though with synthetic life. But if we're just copying their DNA, would they even they wouldn't be biological though? So wouldn't the species not really exist in its like true oh, form? They, they could be depending on how well we understand how to make synthetic life. So there are several laboratories around the world that are working on this. One of which is in, at, at Harvard, uh, led by Jack Shostak. He's quite optimistic that uh, they will get to make synthetic life. Now, 
it wouldn't be the same as as natural life but that's the first step and you know if we are talking decades from now or a century from now it's quite possible that scientists will be able to mm. produce synthetic life out of raw materials just like you bake a cake a complex cake you know out of the ingredients in a in a recipe book uh, same way so uh, you've been in the news, uh, speaking of life, quite a bit lately for your theory regarding uh, Muamua. Uh, were you surprised how much attention this has garnered? Yeah, and I think the attention comes from the fact that, you know, I'm trying to advocate a view that I regard as sort of down-to-earth, common sense, based on what we saw about this object. So to me, I'm not, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not trying to make any unusual statement based on all the facts that we know, okay? I couldn't really explain this object using the conventional scenarios, you know, like if it's a comet or an asteroid, it just doesn't hold together given the evidence. So I just suggested this. Now, the only reason that I'm getting attention is because my colleagues, the other people around, you know, behave differently and there is a pushback and so, you know, I'm not responsible for that, their part. I can explain why I think this object is unusual and merits uh, special attention and why we should continue in the future. You know, just like walking on a beach, you see all these seashells, and every now and then you stumble over a plastic bottle that was artificially made. And the same way, you know, when we explore the sky for objects that came into the solar system, uh, every now and then we might encounter an artificial object. It's a message in a bottle kind of situation. And uh, we ourselves, you know, sent Voyager 1, Voyager 2, New Horizons. We're sending out space junk. So why should we not expect? And and also I should say uh, half of all the sun-like stars, uh, by now we know from the Kepler satellite that uh, half of them have an Earth-sized planet roughly at the distance of the Earth from the sun. And so you could have liquid water on the surface and the life as we know it. I mean, if you replicate the conditions on Earth, why wouldn't you get the same outcome? To me, that sounds like the most conservative assumption to assume that under similar circumstances, you get the same outcome. But somehow it's considered a fringe view by the mainstream of astronomy. And I just cannot understand why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you say, um, you break it down in your book that the shape, the shininess and the way it moved are the things that really sold it to you on this being some sort of an alien object. Uh, so when you talk to your colleagues and they criticize you for it, how do you respond to that and how do they generally react when you lay out your, your evidence? Right. So my, my approach uh, follows the advice that basketball coaches give to the team players. They say, look, you know, look at the ball, not at the audience. Okay. Keep your eyes on the ball. So I'm just keeping my eyes on the evidence. I don't care about how many likes I get on Twitter and what the audience is doing. That's the first principle by which I operate. But, you know, many of my colleagues look at each other before they say something. Okay. So that's first. If you want to discuss this object with me, you have to forget about the other people around you and just think about the evidence. Okay. And the point about this evidence is that um, this object doesn't look like anything we have seen before. Now, this is not only me saying that. It doesn't look like any comet or asteroid that we've seen before. 
not a comet because we don't see a cometary tail and the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply behind this object, couldn't see any gases coming off it. Not an asteroid because it's actually, there is an extra push exerted on it that you often associate with a cometary tail. So it's sort of a strange situation that, the, you know, there is an extra push and we interpret that extra push from uh, reflecting sunlight. And in fact, uh, in September 2020, there was another object that showed a deviation from an orbit that is dictated just by gravity. And then it, it turned out that this object came from Earth. It's a rocket booster from uh, the Lunar Lander Surveyor 2 in 1966. Uh, but before it was known that it's that lunar uh, rocket booster, um, it, it was noticed that it deviates from an orbit dictated just by gravity without showing a cometary tail. So here is an artificial object that was hollow and thin and uh, exhibited a push without a cometary tail. We know that it's artificial because we made it. But in the case of Oumuamua, it came from outside the solar system. We didn't make it because we couldn't even chase it with our best rocket. So it was moving too fast near Earth just for a few months. Clearly it didn't come from Earth. What is it? So uh, I'm saying, look at the facts. And, and there are other weird properties of this object that are described in my book. So I will not go into all of them. But, you know, most of the criticism is coming from people that I do not regard highly as scientists, by the way. And they remind me of this congressman, you know, that uh, for many years made anti-gay statements. And then in March 2020, you know, just nine mm -hmm. months ago, he declared that he's gay. Mm. So I would not be surprised if many of the people that make very strong statements against this hypothesis are really intrigued by it and want to believe it. <laughs> so, but uh, I should say that there are a few people that actually took seriously, from the mainstream, took seriously the peculiar properties of Oumuamua and wanted you know, to explain them in terms of a natural process. Mm -hmm. And they had to come up with scenarios that always invoke something that we have never seen before. For mm -hmm. example, a dust bunny, you know, just like you find in a household, a collection of dust particles that is a hundred times less dense than air. So they imagine something the size of a football field that is a dust bunny, and it's so lightweight, it's so porous, that it's pushed by reflecting sunlight. So mm -hmm. instead of my suggestion that it may be a light sail, uh, an artificially made object that is very thin, the argument was maybe it's a dust bunny. The problem is it will not really survive uh, the very long journey you know, for millions of years through interstellar space if it's so porous, in my view. Then there was another suggestion, maybe it's a hydrogen iceberg, something that we have never seen before, a, a, an iceberg, frozen hydrogen that uh, does evaporate when it comes close to the sun, and then you get a cometary tail, but hydrogen is invisible, it's transparent, so we can't see it. The problem with that is that hydrogen evaporates very easily, and we showed in a paper that it actually, uh, this, such an object would not survive the journey. It would mm. uh, evaporate because of the sun, the starlight uh, in interstellar space. Interesting. So, and then there was another suggestion, maybe it's a bigger object that is broken into pieces when it passes close to a star, 
The problem with that is only a small fraction of all the objects pass close to a star. And also, if you break them up, you will end up with fragments that are elongated, whereas the best model for the light that was reflected from these objects, the sunlight, that implied that it's um, flat, implied that it's pancake-like, not uh, cigar-shaped. So yeah. um, you can tell you know, from these suggestions that even mainstream people that take seriously the peculiar properties, when they try to argue for a natural process, they have to come with something that we have never seen before. Mm -hmm. So my point is, if it's something that we have never seen before, why not put on the table also a possibility of an artificial origin? And in my mind, that origin is actually more likely than a dust bunny or a hydrogen iceberg. Mm. Uh, and that's why I say, okay, just like Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes, you know, if you eliminate all other possibilities, whatever left must be the truth. That's the method by which I arrived to it. And uh, of course, you find a lot of people that will not follow the details of the argument and just say, ah, yeah, I don't believe this. It's never aliens. Um, mm. But that shows the prejudice. You know, it's just like these philosophers that said, we know that the sun moves around the earth. They told Galileo Galilei, we, know, we don't need to look through a telescope. And then they put Galileo in house arrest. Mm -hmm. uh, but that didn't change the fact that the Earth moves around the sun. And, you know, I'm, I'm in house arrest right now, but it's because of the pandemic, not because my colleagues are putting me. Uh, right. So in that sense, I'm more fortunate. Yeah. So if this were an alien light cell, though, I wonder, is it unmanned? Is there no one on it? Because they seem to be just drifting through space for who knows how long. Um, they pass an inhabited planet, but they keep on going. So what, what, what's your theory? What is this object exactly? What purpose yeah. would it have? Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, it, journeys are very long uh, at these speeds, uh, mm -hmm. the speed that Oumuamua was moving. It, it takes, um, you know, tens of thousands of years to just traverse from one star to the nearest star at these speeds. So it's highly unlikely that anyone would have patience to sit for, you know, tens of thousands of years on a spacecraft just to reach another star. And it's more likely to be a, a piece of technology that doesn't care much if you have electronics or you have just a light sail. Or you could, it could be space junk. It could be just a, a layer that was ripped off a, a spaceship or something else. Um, and uh, we just don't know because we didn't collect enough uh, information about it. The astronomers basically thought that it's a comet at first. They assumed that it's just like the objects in the solar system. So either a comet or an asteroid, a comet is a rock that is covered with ice. And when it comes close to the sun, the ice uh, evaporates and creates this cometary tail. Mm -hmm. And an asteroid doesn't have this coating of ice. So it's just a piece of rock. And um, they thought it's either this or that. And the data that was collected was quite limited. So we had this guest for dinner, and by the time we realized that it's weird, it's already out of the front door into the dark street. Mm -hmm. We cannot really chase it, um, but we can look for other peculiar objects. You know, pro it's probably not the only one. Yeah. Um, so when do you think we'll have irrefutable evidence that there is life beyond Earth. I know the James Webb telescope is going up later this year. So will that be what you know triggers it? And they'll have to acknowledge maybe your theory was right and that there's some sort of proof they can't deny? Or what's your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so it's the James Webb, unfortunately, I mean, I was in the original uh, science mm. advisory committee for the James Webb many, a, a few decades ago. 
Um, and uh, the issue is that it has a very narrow field of view. It, it, it looks at a small portion of the sky at any given time. So what you need to find such objects is to cover a big chunk of the sky and just survey it for objects that are passing. Okay, mm -hmm. that's what the PanStars telescope did in Hawaii. It was the, the task of PanStars uh, was to find objects that are uh, posing a risk to Earth. You know, Congress in about uh, 16 years ago decided that we need to survey the sky and find all the dangerous objects that could collide with Earth with a size above 140 meters or so. We know that the dinosaurs were killed with an object that is tens of kilometers in size, you know, very big. Uh, it must have been spectacular for the dinosaurs to look up and see this, this rock coming and getting bigger and bigger and eventually smashing them. Uh, but um, they didn't have astronomy. They didn't have telescopes. They didn't have science. So they couldn't really protect themselves. We can notice such objects in advance and perhaps deflect them. And that was really the charter. Uh, the Congress gave astronomers. And then PanStars was serving the sky and by chance found this object, which is not really a risk, but it, was, it appeared in the image of the sky. So um, what you need is to survey the sky. Um, PanStars is doing it, but within three years, there is another observatory, which is currently uh, getting to completion, actually, in Chile, um, that, that is called the Vera Rubin Observatory. It's an American observatory uh, that will have a survey of the sky called LSST that would be much more sensitive than PanStars. And if objects like Oumuamua, you know, if Oumuamua was one out of a random population of objects that move around, uh, you would expect to find one every month or so of this mm. size. Um, and uh, that means that we should... Uh, have a lot of evidence within, and it will start its operation within three years. So uh, my hope is that once it starts operating, we will find more objects that look as peculiar as Oumuamua. And then, you know, if one of them approaches us rather than recedes away from us by the, when we detect it, then we can meet it halfway and just uh, take a photograph of it. It should be relatively easy. We don't need to chase it. Uh, Oumuamua was discovered in October 2017 when it was already receding away. Uh, but if we were to discover it in July 2017, and by the way, I was visiting Maui uh, with my family at the time and gave a talk at the observatory on Mount Haleakala, where PanStars is, and uh, uh, in July. Uh, but by at that time, uh, nobody knew about Oumuamua. So my hope is really that within a few years, we'll start collecting evidence about more objects that are the same. And my book serves as a, an alert to the community. Check out, maybe there are uh, artificial uh, bottles there that carry a message for us. Uh, it's another method, rather than looking for you know, radio signals from outer space, something that was done for a while, this is another method for finding evidence for technologies that are beyond their in your book, you also mentioned a story that I heard a few months ago about uh, biosignatures being found in the uh, atmospheres of Venus. Um, do you think there's life there, or what are your uh, beliefs on what that could be? Well, I th okay, so in science in general, we're guided by evidence. We should be guided by evidence, I should say, and, and that's a whole subject that we can discuss later, the, the, the difference between should and are, you know. 
because there are major portion of the portions of the scientific community right now working on things that have no connection to experiments, you know, completely detached and will have no connection during their lifetime. And they feel that they are part of the scientific community. So that that's a separate matter. But but the actual objective of science is to learn about nature based on the evidence, based on experiments that guide us. So it's a learning experience. Now, we didn't, I mean, some people expected maybe there is life on Venus on, in the clouds, definitely not on the surface of Venus because it's much too hot. There was a greenhouse effect and it's much too hot on the surface. It's closer to the sun than us. And, uh, but there is a cloud deck where the temperature is similar to that in the lower atmosphere of Earth. And um, some astronomers uh, uh, reported in, uh, on uh, September 14th, uh, 2020, that uh, there is evidence for phosphine, which is a, a type of molecule that on Earth is produced by microbes. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, first, this, this evidence is now not as uh, robust as it used to be in terms of the, signif- the statistical significance, so we need more data to be sure that Indeed, they detected something, mm-hmm. but even if they detected, the question is, is phosphine necessarily indicative of life in the cloud deck of Venus? Uh, because mm-hmm. in principle, you know, volcanic activity could produce it or something else. We have to figure out whether it's, not, it, it, it's biological in origin or geological, for example. And that is work for the future. You know, it's work in progress, so to speak. I don't have an opinion until we get more more evidence. You know, there, uh, in science, you know, it's not like it's not about prophecy. It's more about given what we know, how likely. So at the moment, it's it's unclear. I would say the situation, and most of the time, doing science at the frontier, the situation is unclear. That's one thing that you know. I think it's a self-inflicted wound that the scientific community tries to portray to the public that when it comes out with a statement. It's always certain because a lot of scientists agree and they are sure of the outcome. But most of the time, scientists do not agree. The evidence is not conclusive. And I think a better approach, rather than pretending that uh, the, the, you know, the emperor has clothes, is to show that the emperor uh, does not have clothes. Mm-hmm. In fact, science is done by iterations. You know, You have some evidence. You look at possible interpretations of that evidence, just like a detective story, you know. And then you improve your understanding by getting more evidence, more data. Eventually, you conclude, uh, you know, with uh, reasonable certainty what the, what the conclusion is. And mm. if the public were to see that process in motion, I think the public would get more confidence in science rather than less confidence. My colleagues are worried, oh, you know, if we show how much uncertainty we have during the process and if we show that we make mistakes, then the public would never believe us that when we say there is global warming, for example. Mm -hmm. But the point of the matter is that, you know, we should show whatever, you know, we are doing so that the public trusts the process. Uh, it, you know, it's not science the way I see it. It's not an occupation of the elite. It's just a matter of applying common sense, given the evidence you have, and concluding what it, the evidence tells you. You know, when I have a problem in my uh, in, in a pipe or in a faucet at home, you know, together with a plumber, we try to look at the clues and figure out what the 
where the problem originates from and, and solve it. And I operate exactly the same way with the scientific uh, anomaly or something that doesn't really line up with what we expected. You know, try to figure out what it is. The same thing about Oumuamua or anything else. The problem is that if you have a taboo, for example, in the case of Oumuamua, not to discuss an alien technology at all, never, ever to mention these words, it's just like saying, okay, I'm doing a calculation, one plus one equal two, and, I'm, and then someone comes and says, you are, you, the number two is banned from any discussion. You should never mention the number two because it's never the number two. And then you say, okay, what do I do? I have one plus one. Do I, you know, so this is a very unnatural situation mm. uh, to have a prejudice that, or put blinders saying you can never get into a particular, pos you know, interpretation. That's inappropriate when you do science. Everything is possible and you look at the evidence. Now, the other aspect of the, I, I would say, unhealthy culture, uh, scientific culture is that on many occasions, scientists converge without any evidence, you know, without something to support their notions. So people talk about extra dimensions. People talk about string theory. People talk about the multiverse. People talk about supersymmetry. And all these concepts that I mentioned are, you know, part of the mainstream discussion. And by that, I mean that people can get honors, awards, recognition, positions, everything by discussing these topics that have no experimental support whatsoever. Hmm. So you have things that for some reason the scientific community converged around when nature itself never gave us feedback to say, yes, this is the right direction. And at the same time, you know, you have questions that the public is really curious about and the scientific community has the technological means to address that question. For example, are we alone? Uh, is there life elsewhere? You know, are, are we the sharpest cookie in the jar? Are, are we the smartest kid on the block? Uh, these are questions to which we can give answers given the current instruments that astronomers are developing, mm -hmm. but there is no funding at a substantial level. Young people are discouraged from entering those uh, interesting questions. And I ask myself, how is that possible? If the public is interested and the public funds science and the scientists have the tools to address these questions, how do you get this unnatural situation? And just to give you a very specific example, in the next decade, astronomers are proposing to build telescopes or, or work towards observatories that will cost billions of dollars in search, for example, for oxygen in the atmospheres of planets around other stars. And the idea is that the oxygen will be a marker, a, a signature of microbial life, primitive life. Now, there are two problems with that. First of all, the Earth didn't have much oxygen in, in its atmosphere for two billion years, roughly half of its life. The first two billion years on Earth, there, were, there was no evidence in, in the composition of the atmosphere for oxygen that would indicate that we had microbial life on Earth. So you could have life with no oxygen in the not much oxygen in the atmosphere. The second problem is you can have oxygen but without life because oxygen can be made by um, natural processes like breaking up of water molecules. So oxygen, even if you detect it after spending billions of dollars, it will not be a proof that life exists on those planets. Okay? Mm. 
What would be a proof? If you detect industrial pollution, for example. So these CFCs, these molecules produced by refrigerating systems or industries here on Earth, with the same instruments that are aiming to detect oxygen, you could also search for industrial pollution. It's just a, a change in the frame of thinking. You know, it's, it, it doesn't require extra funding, but that is never mentioned as a motivation for these instruments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there is something un, unnatural in the way that the community thinks, because if we do find evidence for industrial pollution in, in the atmospheres of other planets, that would be conclusive. You can't make these complex molecules by natural processes. So oxygen will not be conclusive. Industrial pollution will be. You know, what, what else do you need to motivate a, a big project other than something that is more conclusive? And, and, and it's considered as a fringe argument. I don't understand why. No, it makes a lot of sense the way you describe it. Um, one thing that I think is also taboo, um, I'm not sure on it myself, but we have all these you know scientists, pilots, military personnel coming out saying that they've seen objects or seen some sort of proof that we're being visited by more than just uh, Muamua. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Is this something we should study seriously, and uh, do you think there could be some truth to it? Well, first of all, I should say that as a matter of national security, it's important to examine those uh, reports because you want to know if uh, other nations are using technologies that we do not possess, right? So if there is something spying on us, you want to know about it, okay? So it's important to pay attention to it. But um, as to whether it's alien civilizations, I'm, I'm doubtful for a variety of reasons. First reason, I don't think we deserve attention. I think they are, we are not very smart. If you open the morning newspaper every day, you realize, you know, our civilization is doing a lot of stupid things, not really promoting its interests, you know, wasting a lot of energy and money and so forth on destructive uh, things, you know. And um, so I don't think that we are, you know, really the smartest kid on the block. Uh, you know, there could be cakes that were baked to a, a much higher intelligence than we are. Uh, out of the same chemical soup that existed on the early earth. But um, the other, so, so then we are, sort of, I, I would think that we are a middle of the road kind of uh, creatures that you, you find in many places. And therefore, the, you know, when you walk down a, a sidewalk and there are ants on, on the pavement, you don't pay special attention to every ant that you see because it's, these are common. So I think we are common. I don't think that we are special, unique, worthy of espionage. Okay, mm-hmm. let's put, so um, that's reason number one. The second is um, that, you know, the cameras that were recording these fuzzy images of saucers or something else 50 years ago, by now we have much better cameras, you know, much better recording equipment, instrumentation, and the evidence is still on the borderline of believability. It's still fuzzy. I would expect with present-day technology to see crisp images if the old reports were correct. So to me, that indicates that the fault is really with the instruments that may, may be artifacts. That, you know, every generation of instruments has some artifacts, some, some, some illusions uh, due to you know, technical properties of the device. And, and uh, perhaps that's what we always see. And uh, another possibility is um, some natural process you know, that happens and uh, is misinterpreted. 
But I do think, I do think that it's important for the scientific community to examine these reports. So in other words, suppose um, you know, the military reports that uh, over a particular region, you know, over the ocean, you see some unusual phenomena. You can, in principle, fund a project, scientific project, where you take scientific instruments, place them around this region, and try to record whatever you see with much better sensitivity and precision and resolution and everything, and do a scientific experiment to check it. But if the scientific community is just dismissing these reports and there is no funding to check them, then we will stay in this vague situation where, you know, the general public entertains this possibility and the scientific community completely ignores it. I think, you know, it would make a lot of sense to just put some money, doesn't, it may not require a lot of money, to fund scientists that will collect data in, you know, in the same environments where the reports find something unusual. And mm-hmm. you know, then we can close if, uh, the chapter. You know, if there is nothing really found, we say scientists looked into it and nothing was there. But if something is found, then we have to explain it. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so we're coming down to the last few questions here. So we're uh, pushing a bit for time. Um, I read something interesting that Stephen Hawking actually visited your home. Uh, I'm wondering what that experience was like. Yeah, so it all started. Um, I attended an event back in uh, 2015, and uh, his caretaker, uh, he was in the same uh, hall in, at the Royal Society in London, uh, England, and uh, his caretaker said uh, to me, said, you know, uh, Stephen is uh, bored. Would you mind uh, speaking with him, please? <laughs> so I was the only physicist in that big hall and next to him. So I told, uh, I went to him and said, Stephen, we are about to establish, to inaugurate uh, within uh, about a year or less than a year, a, a new center uh, we, that we call the Black Hole Initiative that will focus on the study of black holes. And since you worked all your life on, on, on black holes, we would like to have you as, as our special honorary guest. Um, and then I left him because, you know, it would take a few minutes for him to respond that I was not that patient. <laughs> so I thought um, that's it, you know, but then a few months later, he wrote a special letter, you know, he worked on it for a day, wrote a letter to his doctor asking to make the, f- the first international trip for him in about three or four years. Uh, across the Atlantic because he was not allowed for medical reasons. And the amazing thing is that the doctor approved it. Mm. And so a colleague of mine from the physics department at Harvard, Andy Strominger, came to my office and said, you know, it's amazing. Uh, The doctor approves it. The only problem is it will cost half a million dollars. But that's your problem (laughs) as director of the Black Hole Initiative. And he left. You know, and I called the dean and the dean said, you know, there is no way we can raise that amount of money and there are risks involved because of his health situation. Bottom line is that I found funding for it uh, within a few days from um, uh, and and, uh, then he came to visit in April 2016. And um, we, you know, I hosted him at, at our home uh, for Passover because it was just at the time of Passover, and um, he liked the food that my wife made. Uh, He came with uh, a whole crew of people that uh, take care of him, 
uh, including some, uh, you know, bodyguards or police uh, security people. They were very helpful because uh, one of the guests that came to my house was careless and she put uh, a bottle of wine uh, in a bag on, on the floor and then the wine, uh, the bottle broke and, and the wine went onto the carpet. But these security guys were so skillful that within a few seconds, they immediately, you know, cleaned it up. And uh, so that was a great benefit to having them as well for dinner. And uh, he gave a small uh, speech uh, at dinner because uh, during the same visit, we also uh, inaugurated Starshot, which is uh, a project to uh, visit the nearest star, uh, funded by Yuri Milner uh, from Silicon Valley. And, um, and Stephen uh, attended that uh, public announcement in New York City, where I was as well, and then came to inaugurate the Black Hole Initiative on the same trip. And so uh, overall, it was an amazing uh, experience in the sense that, um, you know, you could see him as a relatively modest and, and straightforward person. I mean, one of the evenings, he told his caretakers, he said, you know, I'm, I'm pretty bored. Why don't we go to the bar of the hotel and have some fun over there? And, uh, you know, he lived sort of life as as an, and not, you know, a person that doesn't have these disabilities. And the remarkable thing is most people would get depressed under these circumstances without having the physical ability to do normal things. And, and he just ignored it. Hmm. Wow, that's pretty astounding. Um, so uh, yeah, I guess that's uh, about it here. Uh, your book comes out on the 26th, right? So um, it was interesting. I hope people check that out. Um, thanks again for coming on. It's uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed very much the conversation. Appreciate it.